Well, it's good morning. morning. It's great to fellowship with most of you two days in a row. We don't get to do that very often. And yesterday we enjoyed the fall festival. And once again, thank you for uh, allowing us to enjoy ourselves like that for all the hard work and the service and the intense playing and laughing and giggling, roasting marshmallows and eating that went on. It's as we were reminded in a scripture in Ecclesiastes yesterday, it is a gift of God what we experience in this community and with one another, including the food and the fun and the games, um, as long uh, as long at, along with the hard work, it's a gift of God, and I'm grateful for it. Uh, the food was delicious once again. I had to go out in the shop this morning, get to come along to try to help me with this last button on my pants to get it buttoned this morning. <laughs> That's how good the food was yesterday. <clears throat> and that's funny, but it is, it's true. I had a hard time getting the pants going this morning because of the food. It was. Well, we are in uh, this great book of Nehemiah. And we are in chapter 7 this morning. It's a, it's a long chapter. I'm going to make an attempt, a valiant attempt to cover it all this morning. I will be, will tell you up front that I am heavy on my first point and a little lighter on the last two points. So you can be turning your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 7. So while Nehemiah, as you will recall, while Nehemiah is in Persia, bearing the cup of King Artaxerxes, God put a burden in the cup of his soul to bear. And that burden was this new passion to go back and be a part of the people in the homeland of his Jewish brothers and sisters And rebuild that city and the people once again into a people of God. And so he prayed to God for an opportunity to leave the service of the king and to go back and do that. And the Lord answered that prayer and he had that opportunity and he went back to his homeland and he assessed the situation and he came up with an aggressive plan to rebuild the wall. He concluded that that's what needed to take place in order for God's people to thrive. Was to rebuild this wall. And so he comes up with a plan. And by true grit and determination. And the strength of the Lord. In a mere 52 days. Something that they were not able to do. In about 140 years. Because of the opposition from within and without. About 52 days the wall is completed. It's just it's it's a miracle what they accomplished. And so much so that even today. Many of the Jewish people hold Nehemiah. Right up there just under Moses as a hero of the faith because of what he accomplished for their people and the city in that time. So the question is, with this huge task finished, or the dude's version of, of what happened in the first six chapters is, yeah, we, we finished the wall. It's done. But with the wall finished, now what? Does Nehemiah pack his things up and go back to the plush courts? Of the king of Persia? No. He's still there because as laborious as that was, building the wall was just one step in a many step process to rebuild the city and the people of God. And so for the remaining chapters of the book of Nehemiah, that's what literally what we're going to see is the remaining steps that take place to solidify God's people once again. I'm going to begin with the first four verses in our text, Nehemiah chapter 7 this morning. Now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors, 
and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed. I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is high. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large. But the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. So in short order, in order for the city of Jerusalem to be not just rebuilt into any city, but a city of God. In addition to the walls, it needed gatekeepers and it needed singers and it needed the ministry of the priesthood. And later on the chapter in the chapter, we'll see it needed donations. It needed money. It needed funds for the work of the Lord. And I've condensed this chapter into three points. People policies. We'll look at genealogies briefly or generations. And then we will look at the donations or the offerings that came in. So building this wall. Even though it was it may not have seen like a very spiritual thing to do to dig in the dirt. Dig in the ruins and. Pull out rocks and put them together and slap some mortar on them. It may not have seen like an act of worship, but this was a game changer. It was a game changer in the redemptive history of God's people. Because what it enabled them to do was to feel safe. It enabled them to feel safe and be safe and to be protected. So that their minds and their energies, their time, their efforts could could finally concentrate and focus more fully on what else God had in store for them in their lives. So now they're not they're not so much focusing on just staying alive. And and these were hard times. I mean, like the days of Elijah, famine and sword and darkness, as you know, in the in the first six chapters. But now they can actually rebuild. They're not so as worried about how am I even going to put food on the table for my kids? My kids are starving. And how do I know, you know, am I, are we going to be attacked in our house tonight by our enemies? And so now they're able to rebuild what we might consider in their society, the infrastructure, the things that enable societies to prosper. Of the businesses, education, so that you can actually not just survive for today, but plan for the future. Make your home and your community and your neighborhood a better place. Make headway. This can't happen under the kind of torment that they were under. It can't happen in war-torn societies. War and terrorism wreak havoc on communities and societies. We see this today. It's a crisis in our generation, in our day and time. War-torn and terrorized societies have a terrible time trying to move on and prosper as a people. It just produces lots of problems. What do we read about in the news today overseas are the problems of all of the immigrants and the refugees making their way into the European Union. This is because of financial hardship. Immigration is because of financial hardship. People from Egypt and different parts of the world, families, they're having to move. 
because they literally can't put food on the table for their kids. And so you can't blame them for, for moving to the next place and the next place where at least there's a hope. If I could just get in there, maybe I could we could eat something and I could build a future. So we have the problem of the immigration, but also on top of that, the refugees from the war torn countries. And these are people who really didn't leave on their own will. They had to leave. Their houses perhaps were destroyed or under threat. The troops are coming in. So they had to grab what possessions they had, tuck their families under their arms or kids under their arms and, and kind of run for their lives. And they're looking for a place to reestablish themselves. You just when you're constantly terrorized and we are seeing this when you're constantly terrorized and you're under the threat, the dark cloud of of um, bombs and war and havoc and death. It's it's hard to pick up the pieces and concentrate on what the next day may bring. And so they grab their families and they flee to a place where maybe they can offer themselves a little better protection. They're desperate. And they're vulnerable, vulnerable. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out in our world today. What we do, the different nations do with all of the refugees and all the desperate, vulnerable people. But but when you can establish some protection for yourselves, I mean, real thick walls, protection that arrows can't go through. And you, you it gives you a fighting chance to move on. And so this wall has given the people hope, hope for a new beginning, hope for peace, hope for laying their head down on the pillow at night and actually getting a good night's sleep. Hope that maybe I can have the time now to, to plant that extra field, to sow that extra seed. Maybe now I have time to sow more clothes for the kids and maybe even put a little bit of food in the pantry. So because of that act of worship of digging in the rubble, they can begin to thrive and improve their living conditions, maybe even start having schooling again for the kids and so forth and get the marketplace buzzing again. So they have this border. They have this boundary that is enabling them to thrive. Uh, Just for another cultural event, what is the crisis in America? Not um, that we have a lot. Well, that's a loaded question, isn't it? What's the crises in America? One of the crises in America is immigration in our country. What are we going to do about the, the crisis of immigration? Or do some people say we need borders around. Let's, let's control the source of the problem first so it doesn't just keep getting worse. And then we can figure out what to do with it. So even today, we're faced with these kind of decisions that they were faced with. So the walls, at least, and the gates solve the problem of being harassed, being consumed. Now they can thrive. You know, societies that are a society of peace and it's a society of order, that's what thrives. Look all over the world at different countries like that. When you have the proper people and policies in place and you have these things, you can actually make a lot of headway. We're so blessed in this country, we, we, we seldom have to worry about these kind of things. We have enjoyed peace and prosperity for many generations. And look how our nation considered the best nation that has ever been in the history of the world. Look how it has thrived. Because we don't have to worry about is my house going to be bombed tonight? 
What kind of collateral damage will I suffer from? We actually can send our kids to schools and we're thinking about what kind of degrees, what college education or what kind of careers they're going to go into. We have that freedom because of the, the blessings of, yeah, we've had some great leaders that have gone before us in a strong military. And we just enjoy the peace and order of all that. So with the wall in place now, it's people and policy time. Getting the right policies and the right people in place so that we can preserve what we have worked hard to and and maintain it and then also make some leeway. So, first of all, we look at the people that Nehemiah puts in place. Now, remember, he's wanting to build a God fearing society. This isn't just some prosperous city. He wants this to be about God. And so the best way to build a God fearing society is to put God fearing leaders in place. If you want to build that kind of community, then you have to put people who are led in the fear of God, led by the spirit of God. So you know that you're all on the same page. You worship the same God. You have the same goals, the same aspirations, and you can trust each other in your leadership and your decision making. You know, you can't be there all the time. You can't watch people all the time when you when you um, share the responsibilities. You just have to there has to be an element of trust. So you want to put somebody in that position that is trustworthy and shares the same kind of values. And that's Nehemiah's first requirement when he thinks about who to put in place. Are they God fearing people? It happens that his brother Hananiah and I guess a friend um, Hananiah. I guess they were at a shortage for names during that time. And Hananiah, Hananiah, Nehi, Nehemiah. But uh, so he puts his brother in place to rule over this city now that they are safe. They're leaders. He can trust them. And leaders need more than just ability. There are good leaders that do not and, and can can provide safe and safety and order. But doesn't mean they're going to provide a God fearing community or provide the vision that we need as the people of God. So not only do they need ability, but they need the fear of God so they can all be on the same page and make sure the job is done Right. So he puts them in charge of the city. And then he puts other people, gatekeepers. A gatekeeper is an important job. We don't have gatekeepers anymore. But a gatekeeper is an important job in the ancient world of cities. These are the people that uh, will watch over their neighborhoods and the city was divided. You will recall kind of in sections based on the, the gate. That, that they lived in front of or actually behind. And so these sections of the city were like, um, they were defined by what gate you lived closest to, but they were basically like neighborhoods. They all had their little section. They had their little neighborhood. And so a gatekeeper would guard that, the door of their neighborhood. That was their responsibility. That was the part they played in maintaining the peace, the order, the safety, so that God's people could thrive. They served as that kind of leader to enforce the laws. It was their job to keep the good things in and the bad things out. So there were strict rules and policies. We'll look at that policy later. The, go the doors weren't open for long. But they didn't want to let anything in that would harm 
the city. And so in large part, they were responsible for the spiritual well-being of their people, of their neighborhood. So applied, how would we apply something like this to our modern day, say, to our to a church? Well, this could be the people with a variety of gifts. It might be the people that are gifted with the gift of hospitality, because they're the people that that welcome, open their doors, open their homes and welcome people in that they think would be good. That they, that they think that need to be loved or or have something to offer the body of Christ. So a gift of hospitality, in a sense, is serving as a gatekeeper. They're reaching out and they're loving. It could also be uh, those with the gift of discernment, because those with the gift of discernment might might sense something about a certain family or individual that things aren't right. They might be a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. And they might not be good for this particular body. Um, it also could be somebody with a gift of discernment or even or leaders that are charged with shepherding people because we we have the job of keeping false doctrine out. Which is not so easy because there are so many false doctrines out there today. They're just so close to the truth. And that's what makes them easy to fall for. There's a little bit of truth in those lies. That's how Satan works. And so the serving as a gatekeeper to keep false doctrine out and not let it come in. And, and, you know, just one family or one person can come into a church and wreak havoc with false doctrine or false teaching and, and get a lot of followers and then leave. So it's gatekeepers. It's everybody in the local body doing their part, exercising their gift, making sure that we are worshiping God as he deserves with sound doctrine discerning these kind of spiritual things that are happening in our midst. So the church has gatekeepers and they play a part in what God is doing in that particular body. The next important thing to reestablish the people as the people of God. I mean, what is one of the things that the people of God love to do but sing? And so there were singers that were appointed. That was a part of their Lifestyle, worship, worship and praise is a part of the lifestyle of the people of God. And so they were literally appointed the, the, the worship leaders or the praise band or the choirs and so forth. The leaders were assigned to worship the Lord and and ascribe him the praise that he is worthy. So it's the, it's the songwriters. It's those who are musically inclined. They. The people God loved to write songs to him and, and try to, to love him in words and then to love him and adore him in music because God likes it. God has plainly revealed in his word. There's a lot of mysteries about the Bible and things we scratch our head over. But one thing that's so clear in scriptures that God loves to be praised. He absolutely loves it when the, the people that he has redeemed, he's forgiven, he's been gracious to come together corporately and lift their voices together as an offering and sacrifice to him. Oh, it just pleases him. And so singing, playing joyful noises and songs and, and accurate words that we sing to God, not just any words, but accurate words. He loves this and habits, the praises of his people, and he wants his 
He wants his whole family to get out of the bed on the days of corporate worship and come together and join our voices together. It's it's a sacred thing to do. And so a God fearing society will have lots of music and they'll have lots of joyful singing. It's kind of sad today that singing at worship has become so man centered. It's become so much about the instruments and the sound system. We have to get all this stuff right and play the you got to play my favorite song. and You got to play it the way I like it most so I can worship the Lord. And all of a sudden it's become about me when it's all about God. That's the whole purpose for the singing and the and lifting our verse, our voices. It's not so I can feel good, although I can. It's it's to bless God. That's the main focus. I love what the um, late contemporary Christian music artist Rich Mullins. He's kind of out of style now, I guess. But uh, he, he said, you know, I'm reading the Bible. And it said one of the requirements of Christianity is to sing to God. And he thought that's the easiest requirement. And that's what I'm going to do. He became a very, uh, very gifted man and. Worship leader and sang awesome songs to the Lord, God-centered songs. I love the worship. That, I've always loved the worship that's taken place over the years at New Covenant Fellowship. Uh, we've had different instruments and different leaders in place, but it's just been a time. I think by God's grace, we've been able to keep God in, in the uh, in the, the forefront. And you get a sense when you come here that. With or without the music or musicians, we want to sing. So just get us started and we're going to sing our praises to God. Many times um, last week I, sh- I shared about a song that was stuck in my head that I didn't like. And people keep joking about it. The people of the Lord song. It was just bad timing for that song for me. It, but a lot of times during the week i have a song you know music gets into your soul it's a wonderful beautiful thing and it can minister to us in a way that just mere words can't you know that um but many times during the week i have a song stuck in my head and nine times out of ten it's a song that we sang here for worship that sunday during our corporate gathering so i have that that gospel-centered music that continues to minister to me all week. It's a wonderful, beautiful thing. It's it's part of a God-fearing society. And I'm grateful for the guys in the sound booth. And I'm grateful always for the worship team. And those that bring and minister to us in music Sunday after Sunday. And then the third thing that he appoints are the Levites. Of course, those are the priests. They have been called by God, assigned by God for ministry. And the ministry is to the people and their ministry is to God and ultimately to bring God and the people together into a relationship of fellowship and peace and harmony through the atoning blood that we know of as the blood of Christ. Just through God's grace and forgiveness, we're able to fellowship with him. And so the ministers, the priests want to keep reminding the people of what it what is required of them so that they can fellowship with the God of glory and the God of love so that man can meet sinful man can meet with a holy God through the atoning blood of Christ. And so they have to be appointed in order for a God fearing society to worship God rightly and even to have opportunities to do that, especially corporately. Of course, this would be. 
if we applied it today, it would be those in a ministry position. Uh, probably prom- primarily deacons or elders or some kind of ministers um, that would, would introduce people to the Lord and help them grow in Christ. Men that have been called by God and confirmed by the church. Nehemiah found these men. He realized, though he had this task, he couldn't do it by himself. So he needed to find trustworthy men that could help him minister and make sure that the people of God are getting the things that they need in order to thrive. Um, It's kind of an indictment against me because what happens is if you have a leader that has a tendency to want to do everything himself. uh, I open myself up there for criticism. Then what happens is things bottleneck. Because there's, it's just too big for everything to go through one man. So things need to be spread out. The load needs to be spread out. And that's what Nehemiah is doing. So that the things of God that need to be accomplished can be accomplished. I'm grateful, for instance, in our congregation that the load of ministry is spread out. Because there's just no way that even the plurality of leadership here could handle all the ministry that takes place. So, for instance, we have a missions committee does a great job of helping to share the burden and and making tough decisions about how to spend every penny of the Lord's tithes and offerings to stretch it the furthest for God's glory. And so they serve this body as that committee and, and enable us to minister to not only local community, but the world at large. Very active ministry. So. So these decisions don't bottleneck, it's spread out. We also have, as I guess, forms of ministry like our community groups, our neighborhood or our gatekeepers. And they are assigned, really, it's it's opening their homes, opening their gates for other families to come in so that ministry can take place. That's the idea, so that we can minister and be ministered to, so that we can grow in Christ and thrive in Christ. And so we have that, that responsibility of ministry is being spread out as well. Of course, we have our, our Sunday school department that, that has a director over it and puts certain people in place so that people of all ages are being properly fed the word of God. And without the teachers, I mean, we could not do this. And so you have you have teams at New Covenant Fellowship that just help balance out the load and the burdens of ministry. That take place. And there's a lot of other groups and committees and and teams that are in place here at this church that enable us all to thrive, to keep that peace, to keep that order among us as a people of God. And that's our goal to edify, to exalt, to evangelize the lost. So it takes teams. And Nehemiah puts these teams in place. It takes people, but it also takes policies. Not a lot. We won't look at a lot here, but Nehemiah does assign some policies. Um, and the first one is to when when to open and close the gates. Something as practical as that. And then the second is the policy of posting guards. Look at verse three. I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they're still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. So you might be assigned guarding your own house, your own cul-de-sac, so to speak. 
The gates weren't open long, were they? Only in broad daylight. And this is to eliminate any threat that evil that might happen in the darkness, under the cover of darkness. So he's being very cautious in protecting the people of the city so nobody can disguise themselves and it has to it has to close early. Of course, the idea is just to protect the people. We've got to protect what we have here. He saw that as his, as his job, preserve the peace, the order that's been gained. And we need gates, we need doors, and we need gatekeepers to do that. The Bible often talks about the watchman on the wall. It's an important part to play in God's people. Some of us serve as watchmen. Some of us, some of us go before others, even in the area of prayer, being able to see what may be coming down the pike, what God may be doing. Some can see that better than others just because they're gifted by God. And so this is all to keep the Lord thriving in the hearts of his people so that we can just grow to give God the honor that he deserves. So we have to know also on an individual basis, if it's so important for a city to have walls, and guards posted to keep an eye for our vulnerable spots. We need to do that in our own hearts as well. And Proverbs tells us that our heart is the, is the wellspring of life. So for our own individual walk, we, we have to ask ourselves, am I guarding my heart? Or am I opening it up to the enemy? So things like done in, uh, done in darkness and secrecy are never good for the heart and the soul. It's kind of the open door policy where I want to I want to open myself up from the Lord to the Lord and not hide anything so that he can heal every part of me. And we have to take personal responsibility of that as God's sheep. It's ultimately our own responsibility to go to guard our own hearts, though God does put shepherds in place. And we know by now, if you ever read scripture, you know. That if you are a believer, you have a fierce enemy. And that is Satan. And he will always relentlessly try to set you back and steal any good work. The peace and the order that God has brought into your life, he will try to rob you from it. And so, yeah, we need to guard our hearts in order, in order to maintain what the goodness that God has brought in when we open the door of our hearts. To salvation. Put on that helmet of truth. I mean the helmet of salvation. And the breastplate of righteousness. And the belt of truth. And the sword of the spirit. And those good news boots. Keep, keep the armor of God upon us. On a daily basis. And guard ourselves from things that would harm us. Or our home. Our families. Our spouses. Then the second thing we see here. Once the policies. And the people are put in place. In this chapter, Nehemiah just gives a litany. Once again, we are faced with genealogies. Where the son of this and the son of that. And we've talked about those. And that's the part of Scripture that, that you, uh, that's where you take your nap when you're reading that part of Scripture. And so verses 5 through 65, he starts talking about the, what I'll call generations. Won't spend long here, but I do want to make a few points. He is led by the Spirit, it says, to take a census of the people. 
So verse 5, God put it in my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up from the first and I found in it written. And it talks about these are the people that originally went up under the first leaders of Zerubbabel and Ezra and so forth. Remember, Ezra is a scribe and he, he kept good records of these things. Genealogy is important for a variety of reasons to the Jew, Jewish people. Then he goes on, verse 8, as far as describing the people that came. The sons of Perosh, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Ara, 652. And so forth. There's another guy, sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818. And there's, he goes on, I'm not going to read any more in that section, but there's a, lot of, there's a variety of people that have come to serve the Lord, that are on board with what God is doing. So what do the sons of mean here? Are you trying to tell me, for instance, that this guy, Parash, was that active in his marriage that he had 2,172 sons? I mean, no. Not even the branches of mandrakes can do that for you. So we're not talking about one generation. He's basically listing about 14 generations here. He's looking from this from from the beginning of this person, all of these generations and out of them to this generation, the, the sons of Perosh that felt convicted in the spirit to to participate in this work of God from leaving Babylon to going back to the city and being a part of that, part of that, exposing themselves to dangers and making the hard choices. It was over 2000 of them. Now, previously, I've talked about genealogies and how they encourage us in a variety of ways. And one simple way is just that you get your name in the Bible. And I think that's cool because people are listed in Holy Scripture and it's all inspired by God. And it doesn't say that they did or didn't do anything. It just puts their name in there. That'd be cool to have your name in Holy Scripture. So it encourages us that God takes note. And all these people that we don't know anything about, God knows everything about. And he takes note of them. But there's something else Powerful here that I want to just concentrate on for a few minutes and consider in these names. We might have about 14 generations listed in this section. And I think when you keep finding generations listed in Scripture, one of the points is this. Apparently, God cares about generations. Matter of fact, God even looks at humanity in view of generations. He, he splits us up. He keeps us in place or or uh, keeps track of us, so to speak, in order of generations. We don't really think in terms of generations these days. Um, as near as much, maybe, maybe humanity did in the past. Maybe our forefathers did. But we're a pretty me-centered uh, culture. We think about the here and now. God looks at humanity not just what's going to happen with this family, but ten families down the line based on this family. Of course, we can't do that. We're not God. We can, be, we can have more foresight than we do. But that, it's just a reminder that God looks way down the halls of time at each individual and the rippling impact that they're going to have in his world. Based on 
generations. So most of our lives, we make decisions based on the here and now. Man, if I can just get through this year. Or if I, if I can just get through this week. Or even sometimes, if I can just get through this day. Wow. And here's God looking through, so far down the line. It's not just about this year or this week or this day. It's about thousands of years from now. And what it does is it, it casts this light on how important our decisions are that we make every day. Because the way the world is designed, the decisions that we make every day ripple into the future, for good or for bad. And we're such a self-centered culture, uh, thinking about how everything just affects us instead of thinking about, if I do this, what effect will that have for those that come after me? Maybe even in my own family. So the battles we fight today... Yeah, they're real and they're hard. And I do wonder sometimes on a daily basis, man, if this if I can just get through this week or this day. But the, the, the battles that we're fighting today aren't just about us. They are so important. They're about those that will come after us. So this guy, Parash, he had two thousand one hundred seventy two sons. Way after him that had this God-given passion to still be a part of the work of God. Because of something he started so many generations ago. A passion to return even at the risk of death for the glory of God. They answered the call. Man, his sons are still worshiping. And he's not even there. Based on what he started. It don't even, doesn't even say anything about him. Doesn't even say that he had faithful devotions every morning with his family. But down the line, there they are. Man, warriors ready to serve the Lord by the thousands. Man, our lives aren't just about us. They're not. And especially I remember as a teenager, good grief to try to get me out of my own little bubble. It was impossible. I just life. My head was in a fishbowl and I could only see right here. And, and we're, we're trained. We, we selfishly, naturally think that way. But our culture trains us to think just about ourselves. To make. It's all about the, the moment decision because you, you fear you might miss out on something. That's the teaching of culture. It's not biblical. And so we, we just look at things in those terms. You know, what, what a young people think about these days. It's all about that moment. Satisfying the the urge. Uh, we think we're set. If I could just find that hot girl or that hot guy, life would be so much better. And, you know, hell is hot, too, by the way. But it, it's OK. So maybe they they have certain things you're looking for. But what about that individual, that person you're interested in? What rippling effect? Will that have in the days to come and the people that come after you? It's not it's not just about you in that one particular moment. Or we might say growing up, if I if I just could get this job, it's all about being rich. I mean, everybody knows money solves all our problems. Right. And so I'm going to make decisions just to get rich. But that's not the message of the Bible. 
it's it's uh, being rich can be a hindrance. So what kind of rippling effect will the career that I'm seeking today or that I'm in today have on the future? And it and it just goes down to and affects so many things So we don't want to fall for the me way of thinking, but the B.I.B.L.E. way of thinking about generations. These guys apparently love God and worship God and Way down the road, generations were blessed. It reminds us of Exodus, part of the Ten Commandments, verse six in chapter 20. God says, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Our decisions that we're making in our lives and in our homes today are having an impact on those to come. It makes the tough decisions worth it. Makes them worth it. All it takes are, is a regular, a regular person, a regular person that says, I'm going to worship the God, I'm worshiping God. I'm giving my life to God, to Christ. I'm just going to pack my lunch and I'm going to go to work every day or go to school every day. I'm going to do the best I can to the honor of God. And I'm going to, to try to bring God into my life. I'm going to try to bring God into my home the best I can by the grace of God and establish these kind of things. I'm going to cut my grass like everybody else. We're going to cook meals like everybody else, but this is the kind of life I'm going to live. That's all it takes. These kind of decisions to have an impact in the future. And here I am standing as a son that has a, had a, has a great dad, 89 years old. Oh. I recently told somebody that I don't get emotional about few, uh, many things, but family and God, just they just uh, creep up on me. But my dad's 89. And because of wise decisions that he made, um, you know, I stand here today. It's, it's one of the reasons I, I was always safe and protected unless I did something stupid on my own. It wasn't because of my dad. And uh, so I reaped the benefits of that. And dad, he had nine kids. So, you know, there's a rippling effect. Here of my parents' lives and the decisions they made. And they have 50-some grandchildren. Bobby might know better than me. 50-some grandchildren. I don't know, five or six great-grandchildren. But it's just continuing to go out. God looks at us in generations. And just a cool thought. Don't know if it's real or not. But as I thought about this. And whenever my day is called to go up into glory. Wouldn't it be cool to go up into heaven, whatever it looks like, and, and say, hey, how many Montanians are up here? How many made it? I want to get to know those that went way before me. And then how many are here because of the decision I made to establish Christ in my heart? Would that be awesome or what? And that's how God sees it, because we live forever. Then lastly... This idea of offerings, I'm going to skip verses 66 through 73 because basically some people were excluded from priesthood and serving because they couldn't prove their genealogy. Um, and so they're kind of put on hold until the facts are straight. But then we come into this idea of an offering. Verse 17, now some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work. 
The governor gave the treasury a thousand days of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, 500 mines of silver. And it goes on. It talks about individuals that gave to the treasury. It is for the work. Of course, that is the work of the Lord. So they gave gold. They gave silver. They gave materials, garments, and so forth. So the bottom line is that the God-fearing men to help create this God-fearing society gave to the work of the Lord. The, the poor gave what they had. The rich gave what they had. And that's how God's work is accomplished. By God's own design, it is that we have the pri- privilege of participating. God provides for us and we provide for the Lord's work. We give according to need. We give according to our means it is an act of worship. You'll notice that here on Sundays when it's time to take the offering, it's not a, a pause in our worship service. Let's let's put worship on pause so we can get your money. It is an act of worship. And the guys who do the announcements, they they remind us this is an act of we, we are continuing to worship the Lord by taking up an offering. Now, in this section, the guys have their giving published. I mean, we're reading about their tithes and offerings in a public document. The governors gave this much right there in the Bible. That's kind of scary. And I thought, what would happen if we published our giving? Wow. And what, what would Scripture say about us? What if we, we, we published giving like on websites or something? Well, giving is absolutely necessary for the fabric of a God-fearing society and the fabric of ministry in order for God to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And it shows where our priorities are, shows where our heart is. And Scripture just assumes that we're going to give to the Lord's work. And let me close with this Scripture, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 7. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. For each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So not reluctantly. If God's looking down and we're about to put that tithe in the plate and we just can't get our fingers to let go, something's wrong. There's a reluctance there, and it's, it's a giving problem that we need to go to the Lord about so we don't put the brakes on these things. And it's not under compulsion. I'm sure you've been to churches or, or ministries or concerts or something where the plate gets passed around, and it gets passed around again. Let's pass it around again until finally you feel guilty enough to put something in there. And God says, that's not right. That's not how I want you to give. That's a giving problem, too, if there's guilt involved. It needs to be a joyful experience. And so in no uncertain terms, God says that he loves a person here. He loves a person that prays about what to give, sticks to that decision between he and God, and then takes joy in offering to the Lord. Here's what I have for you, God. We've already agreed on it. And here's the act of worship for you. So. Reluctance is a giving problem. Guilt is a giving problem. And a bad attitude about giving is a giving problem. So, 
Finally, what does finally mean for a preacher? It's a conjunction. It's not it's just a conjunction for I'm, I'm giving you false hope that I'm closing. No, actually, you know, we, God has established in our lives peace and order here. We're so blessed to have Christ in our lives. And, you know, for many of us, we were a mess. We were in ruins and Christ came in and no, we're not there. We're still struggling. We still got issues, but he has brought some peace and order and hope into our lives. And we need to guard our hearts. We need to guard our brothers and sisters as the body of Christ as well and, and be joyful about our service to the Lord. He's building our body. He's maturing us. He is growing in us. We have the beautiful blessing of watching God's work in people, even as we as we witness Jeremiah blossom up here with this instrument, offering his heart and his gift to the Lord in worship. We have this. We're just so blessed to be able to witness what God is doing in our midst. So we want to give cheerfully to the Lord our lives, our voices and our provisions because there's still a lot to do. Is there not? May God bless the preaching of his word this morning.